America Dissected is brought to you by the De Beaumont Foundation. For 25 years, the De Beaumont Foundation has worked to create practical solutions that improve the health of communities across the country. The foundation advances policy, builds partnerships, and strengthens systems to give everyone the opportunity to achieve their best possible health. To learn more, visit DeBeaumont.org. Happy holidays, everyone. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. The holidays are upon us. Chances are you're getting ready for time away from the usual grind, spending it instead with friends or family. But the holidays are also a time to reflect, to think a bit about the year that's passed and the year that lies ahead. So today, I wanted to step back and reflect on 2022. It kicked off with the pandemic's worst surge as Omicron and its many nefarious cousins set records in daily cases, hospitalizations, and deaths accounting for more COVID deaths than all the variants that came before it. As we emerged from Omicron in the spring, everyone was over it. We saw governments, big and small, rush to take down COVID precautions like masks and vaccine mandates. And yet, we continue to watch as hundreds of people die of COVID every single day. But COVID wasn't the only major story in health and healthcare this year. In June, there was this. In a sweeping ruling that overturned a half a century of precedents, five justices ended the right of American women to choose abortion under the Constitution. Rocking the foundations of more than five decades of legal precedent in our country. Demonstrators both for and against the court's decision were quick to react here in Washington. For the first time in nearly half a century, the Supreme Court turned its back on millions of people and revoked the constitutional right to a safe and legal abortion. Within months, 14 states moved to ban abortion, many without exceptions for rape or incest. The move dramatically decimated the landscape for reproductive health in this country. And then there was this. As the COVID-19 pandemic rages on, growing concerns about monkeypox. The U.S. declaring a public health emergency over the monkeypox outbreak across the country. New York City declaring a public health emergency. Officials are calling it the epicenter of the monkeypox outbreak in this country. Monkeypox, officially renamed Mpox, surged among men who have sex with men across the United States in the summer, exploiting a tattered public health system and a basic failure to update our stockpile of vaccines. And yet, in a testament to the LGBTQ community's organization and engagement, spread has since slowed to a trickle. But that wasn't the only rare virus to spread unexpectedly this year. Someone in New York has contracted the first case of polio in the United States in nearly a decade. Polio can be a life threatening a disabling disease. The virus caused thousands of cases of paralysis in the 1940s and 50s. Local, state, and federal health experts are on high alert. That's right, polio. You know, that disease that we almost eradicated from the world a few decades ago, it began to spread. Why? Because of vaccine mis- and disinformation. Much of the mis- and disinformation around vaccines in the wake of COVID has had a spillover effect on the rates of other types of vaccinations, including polio. But it wasn't all bad news. The Senate working through the weekend as Democrats look to pass their sweeping climate, tax, and health care package. The landmark $740 billion economic package. I am confident the Inflation Reduction Act will endure as one of the defining legislative feats of the 21st century. For the first time in American history, the U.S. federal government can negotiate prescription drug prices with manufacturers. 
But that's not all. Unlike in years past, when the new year hits, pharma is going to have to think twice about raising the prices on their prescription drugs, or they'll have to pay the federal government if they raise their prices higher than inflation. Throughout the year, we've tried to stay right there with you to cover it all. And so much more, from myopia to wellness, to mental health, to organ donation. And we'll be right here for you in 2023. But today, I wanted to let you take the reins to ask your questions. Your questions, my answers, starting now. So I've invited our associate producer, Emma Illich-Frank, to be your voice. She'll be asking your questions submitted on Instagram and Twitter and on email. So Emma, take it away. What do we get? Thanks, Abdul. So our first question is from Maha Ayub2021, who asks, what are some of the ways to deal with the opioid addiction that are not conventional? Also, some cities put some Narcan vending machines. How effective is that? That's a really good question from Maha. I want to just step back and I want to remind folks that the single biggest issue that we were dealing with in public health and healthcare before the pandemic of COVID-19 was the pandemic of opioid overdose. And it continues in the background. In fact, um, so much of the evidence suggests that, in fact, because of the pandemic, because of the mental health challenges that have come with it, because so many people have been disconnected from their networks, in fact, uh, opioid misuse and overdose has increased over the past several years. And um, when we look at the declining life expectancy, it wasn't just COVID. We'd seen a decline in life expectancy uh, in years before COVID, and that was largely attributable uh, to a constellation of what we call diseases of despair, um, from suicide to opioid overdose. And so this really is uh, an ongoing, low-burning pandemic, and we have to treat it as such. And if you sort of think about breaking down the challenge of opioid overdose, there, there are three really big ways to think about it. The first is you want to prevent uh, folks who are addicted from dying of an overdose in the first place. And that's where Narcan and Narcan vending machines can be so helpful. Narcan is a drug that uh, biologically opposes the action of opioids. The way that opioids kill someone is that they actually stop your brain from sending the signal to keep you breathing. Uh, If you think about it, if you just sat there, um, you wouldn't have to think about taking every breath. That's something that uh, your uh, basic, the basic part of your brain will do on its own. Um, and uh, that part of your brain, um, when, when opioids are on board, uh, in effect, it gets turned off. And what Narcan does is it reverses uh, the effect of opioids and keeps you breathing. Um, and so once you sort of turn on that midbrain function of starting to breathe again, you can save a life um, from someone who's, who's, who's overdosed. And so putting Narcan anywhere and everywhere and training people on how to use it is critical. And so uh, it's not just vending machines where people can get access to free Narcan. Of course, it's not just like a normal vending machine. You don't have to put your credit card in to get the Narcan. Instead, you can just pick it up. Um, uh, but also making sure that all first responders um, have access to Narcan, making sure that folks are trained on how to use Narcan, um, and, and in effect, making it ubiquitous, I think is really important. The other important part of this, though, is making sure that there are spaces where people can use in an observed manner. You know, the challenge is that um, in a world where we criminalize drug use, uh, people will hide their drug use. And if they hide, um, that's what creates the risk of potentially overdosing in a situation where no one sees you. Uh, and potentially dying. And so um, one of the things that we have to think about is how do we create spaces where people can use safely? Now, I know um, that folks out there uh, might be thinking, well, you know, aren't you empowering people to use 
drugs. Well, um, what you're doing is empowering them not to die uh, because of the disease of addiction. Toward that end, the other part of this is, is stabilizing um, folks with addiction. And the, the overwhelming strategy to do that um, that has incredible evidence behind it uh, is what we call medication-assisted therapy. What that means is rather than leaving people to get opioids oftentimes off the street that can be laced with uh, fentanyl and all kinds of other uh, chemicals, what you do is you offer them a less potent um, opioid, something like methadone or buprenorphine. And what these um, medications do is, in effect, um, they quell the withdrawal symptoms that people have if they stop using opioids um, and protect them from the street versions of the drugs. Because the natural course of this is that um, you know, somebody might get a, uh, a script for an opioid um, and then they develop an addiction. And um, when they can no longer get the script, either they turn to drug-seeking behaviors that themselves can be really dangerous um, or they go to the street. And um, that's when you start having a situation where people are getting all kinds of different potencies um, with very little oversight. And so in this case, what you're doing uh, is you're giving someone a consistent access to prevent their withdrawal. Uh, and to go about living their lives. Now, again, right, a lot of folks who might take a um, a very puritanical approach to this would say, well, you're literally giving people drugs. Like, well, you are, but you're allowing them um, to get access to the means of preventing their withdrawal so they can live their lives without having to worry about where they're going to get their next, um, their next dose uh, or whether or not the dose that they're getting is laced with something that could, you know, ev- eventually kill them uh, or m- make their addiction worse. The third piece of this, of course, is preventing addiction in the first place. And, um, you know, the, the story of the opioid uh, epidemic has been told in a number of different places. To, to that end, I really recommend the, the, the book Dope Sick. It, the author does a fantastic job walking through exactly what happened. But a lot of it had to do with, hey, our forgetting um, that uh, opioids consistently throughout history have caused the same fundamental issues. Um, and frankly, pharmaceutical company greed uh, in rewiring the way that doctors were taught to think about pain. I remember being in medical school uh, in uh, the late aughts and being taught that I should I should think about pain as a vital sign, uh, and that we had to aggressively treat pain. All of this a ploy um, to get us to write more scripts for opioids. And um, th- the challenge here, right, is it's not just about um, limiting the amount of opioid that we write scripts for. It's it's about trying to identify uh, opportunities to use opioids where they ought to be used. And that that is not in writing a long-term script for somebody who has uh, short-term acute pain. Um, but for folks who have serious pain, they need these medications, but they need these medications in circumstances where they're being very directly observed um, and that the risk for opioid addiction is, is being considered. Um, and so it's about rethinking the way that we use these medications so that we're limiting uh, the number of people who fall into an addiction in the first place. So it's it's preventing the overdose deaths, it's managing the disease of addiction, uh, and it is um, preventing addiction where we can. The last thing I, I want to say is that we need to, as a society, rethink the way that we think about drug use. Um, so often, this is seen as, you know, when we think about drug use, it's easy to think about Nancy Reagan and the Just Say No campaign. Um, as if it's some sort of choice. And instead, um, we need to destigmatize drug use, recognize that addiction is a disease like any other disease, um, and treat it as such. Um, we would not 
we would not blame people for having diabetes or getting cancer, um, but we blame people for addiction all the time. Um, and I think that that stigma, it, it, it stops us from doing the basic things that we can do uh, in our society to protect folks. So we got a lot of questions about mental health, and so I'm going to bundle a couple of them into one. Roxanne Taylor asks, what are your thoughts on New York forcibly taking homeless people off the streets? Crystal Deal asks, what are we doing about our crumbling mental health system? How are we protecting community mental health from privatization and corporate greed? And Maria asks, what is the path to universal, well-coordinated, quality mental health care, and physical, of course, for all? Yeah, I really appreciate the question because I think um, in some respects it goes hand in glove with the the previous question about, about opioids. This pandemic... I think has highlighted the the fundamental failure to provide people mental health services, but it's also highlighted maybe why mental health is becoming such an acute challenge in our society. I think even before the pandemic started, we as a society had started to lose the ties that fortify us, our relationships to other people. And what we were given instead was the online facsimile of relationships. And turns out, you know, even when you when you talk to someone on Zoom, it's not the same kind of joy as when you talk to them in real life. There's something hardwired into our brains to want and crave um, direct human contact and interaction, even if you're not touching another person. Just just making eye contact. Think about that. We call it eye contact. Um, is is a profound human need and. I think the pandemic accentuated that given that we, we we lost access to one another to fight this pandemic. But all of that has reminded us that uh, we are facing a series of mental health crises in our country, um, and we've been under-equipped for a while uh, to be able to deal with it. So just uh, some history. Um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, there was a recognition that the way that we'd been handling mental health and mental illness by warehousing people into large state, in effect, penitentiaries, um, but, quote, hospitals, uh, was failing. It was inhuman, um, and it was degrading, uh, and the, the kinds of circumstances in those spaces was just appalling. So the idea was, you know, can we, with the advent of new uh, treatment modalities, can we move people out of psychiatric hospitals and out into communities where they can continue to live and, and, and learn and, and work and play out in the community with the assistance of far better treatment. The problem, though, is this aligned with a moment of a pretty deep austerity and a rethinking of the U.S. social contract where um, we decommissioned these hospitals but never actually invested in the outpatient mental health institutions that we needed to be able to support people. And what happened was instead of warehousing people in state psychiatric hospitals, we warehoused people in jails. That, that's, that's largely what we did. And um, the consequences of that have been uh, utterly shameful. I think we're finally in a moment now where we're starting to recognize uh, that we have a profound need for mental health care. And um, and we're actually putting pen to paper on it. Uh, if, if you think back to um, the bipartisan gun reform bill, it was less of a gun reform bill than it was a mental health infrastructure bill. Um, it did some, some important things on, on, on guns. Don't get me wrong on that. Uh, but what it really did was it made the single biggest investment in outpatient mental health infrastructure 
in American history um, by establishing and scaling uh, a system of comprehensive community uh, behavioral health clinics. And so you're going to see from this law uh, the um, establishment of a number of these community mental health institutions. And that's really a, a great thing. Um, it means that a lot of people who otherwise might not have had care can get care. Um, the other thing that the pandemic did is it, um, it it forced us to recognize that a lot of mental health care can be provided uh, online, and it really ought to be. And so we're still waiting for um, permanent uh, legal infrastructure to protect um, tele uh, mental health, but um, but I think that things are moving in that direction. So that's good news. Um, and yet, at the same time, the challenges with acute mental illness uh, we continue to watch play out in community after community. Um, the fact that we respond to people with mental health crises with people with guns is an abomination. And too often it ends with people losing their lives simply because uh, they have a disease that we have failed to treat as a society. Um, and then the other part of that is um, that homelessness uh, is um, an increasingly acute challenge, largely because we have not invested in building homes. But the interaction between homelessness and, and mental illness should be pretty clear, right? One of the things that, unfortunately, um, serious mental illness can do um, is that it disrupts the ability to sustain the basic infrastructure in one's life. And uh, when you do that, it means that, you know, being able to go to your job consistently, to earn a paycheck consistently, to pay your rent consistently, um, that starts to go away. And so the, the tip of the iceberg, unfortunately, on our homelessness crisis um, tends to be people uh, with serious mental illness. And, and it, it's, it's been that way for a while, but it's particularly bad now because the bigger the iceberg gets, the, the bigger the tip gets. And, um, you know, we, we watched as uh, in, in New York, Mayor Adams announced that they were just going to clear people off the streets. Well, you know, the, the way you solve homelessness is not just to take homeless people off the streets. It's not actually a solution to the problem. Uh, that caters more to the whims of you know, upper middle income or upper income people who don't want to see homeless people because they don't want to be reminded of the inequality and the the, the shameful uh, level of inequality of the society in which they live. Um, but part of the problem here is that you know so much of the real estate in um, in in communities where there is more homelessness tends to be a commodity that's speculated on by the richest people in that in that community or frankly abroad. Um, and so you end up having these homes that are unoccupied um, and uh, thousands of people who are forced to live on the streets. And so if you really want to do something about homelessness, you got to do something about uh, about housing supply. And if you want to do something about housing supply, you got to do something about the fact um, that in communities like New York City, uh, we've allowed the rich and the powerful to control real estate in a way um, that uh, that artificially limits the amount of actual housing that we have. So you know, if we're serious about this, we, we gotta we gotta take that problem on, uh, take it on seriously, rather than trying to, in effect, sweep the problem under the rug and pretend like New York doesn't have a housing crisis or San Francisco doesn't have a housing crisis. And what we're starting to see is a politics that wants to end around um, the problem. They don't want to actually take the problem of housing access seriously, and instead, uh, what they'd rather do is just again sweep homelessness under the rug and pretend like it's a non-issue, so that they can continue to cater. Um, to people who uh, don't want to have to be reminded uh, of the consequences of a challenge that they are unwilling to be a part of helping to solve. So our next question is from at my Hayes. 
Hashtag it's time for Medicare for all. Yes, it is. <laughs> What's it going to take for Americans to take to the streets, literally or metaphorically, for hashtag Medicare for all? All right, so I'm going to start on the um, the downside, and then I'll move to the I'm not going to say the upside, the mid level side. Um, the downside is this: I would have thought that a pandemic in which millions of people lost their health insurance in a matter of a month would have demonstrated the fundamental failure of a system that that requires you to have a job to have basic access to health care. Because, well, in a time when you needed your health care the most, i.e. a pandemic of a deadly disease, that's when people lost it. By definition, our employer-sponsored uh, health care system is insecure, and it's also exceedingly costly. So this gets me to the, the mid-level point, right? While I am saddened that, that frankly, healthcare has, has like declined as a political issue, it was, it was the most important political issue in 2020, then we had a pandemic, then somehow it faded from the political map. Um, I think that the trend in the cost of healthcare is going to continue to force this issue onto people's minds. What do I mean by that? In the past, when we used to talk about the challenge of healthcare, the implicit issue was how do you provide, quote, coverage to the poorest Americans? That, that really was the, the main issue. And that was because for people um, who were you know, middle class, middle income, they generally had pretty good health insurance. And then the industry, both the health insurance industry and then the hospital industry and the pharmaceutical industry, all of them, their greed started to show. And so the costs started to skyrocket. And what happened is that insurance companies used um, the outcomes of this experiment called the RAND experiment, which showed that uh, people who are forced to pay some sort of copay uh, tend to use less healthcare, although they also don't know what healthcare is useful, meaning you could argue that the less healthcare that they use is wasteful, but you could also, there's also been really good evidence to demonstrate that people forego really important points of healthcare, like they are less likely to get breast cancer diagnosed, for example. And what the insurance industry did is they interpreted this in, in, in the best light for them and said that we need to start charging people at the point of care. And that's when in the 90s and the 2000s, you started to see health insurers charge things like deductibles and copays, um, which massively increased out-of-pocket costs. Deductibles have skyrocketed over the past several years, and the average deductible now is nearly $4,000. Um, I talked about this last week when, when we interviewed Ellen Hahn, the actor who uh, made a whole movie to get her insurance. Uh, but if you do the math, the, the median income for a family of four is about seventy-five dollars to $80,000. The median deductible for a family of four is nearly $4,000. That means you're foregoing a paycheck just to get the healthcare you already thought you paid for. Not only that, though, it's also the fact that premiums are skyrocketing, and they're skyrocketing both for employers and for employees. And so I just think that as people recognize that their insurance is getting more and more precarious because they're taking on more and more of the financial risk of getting sick, which is what insurance is supposed to protect you from, I think people are just getting more and more pissed off about it. The hard part, though, is that most people who don't have to use their insurance i.e. they're generally healthy, don't know how bad it is. Um, but as the costs continue to rise, and yes, they are continuing to rise, 
Um, and it's not even that they're rising linearly. It's that they're rising exponentially. Um, I think more folks are starting to realize that insurance is a basic racket. And once that happens, right, it forces this question that all of us face back onto the political scene. And so I, I wish, right, that, you know, in the context of the pandemic, people would have recognized just how much of a failure our system is. Um, I think that the the long-term consequences of the slow and steady uh parasitic greed of the uh, industry is what's going to ultimately force this into the issue that, that changes things. The other thing I'll tell you is that, you know, um, the people who tend to vote tend to be people who, who for most of their lives, uh, took advantage of a health insurance system that was actually pretty robust, right? If you're over 65, you got to think about it. For most of your life, insurance wasn't so expensive and now you're on Medicare. So, uh, you know, the government actually does pay for your healthcare. Um, and if those are the folks who continue to, to make up the majority of voters, it's unlikely, um, that we're going to kind of see the political power, or at least the translation of this problem into the political power that we need, um, to, to actually change the system. So, uh, all of that is to say that all of us who realize that the vice is getting tighter and tighter, um, that we have to translate our frustration with the system into political power, um, and I think that's, you know, as that as that continues to happen, as the vice turns and turns, um, you're going to see more and more people who make this their top issue and their top priority. It's no wonder young people are more likely to support Medicare for all than anyone else because we're, we're the folks who look forward and say, this is fundamentally unsustainable and I don't want to be in a situation where I'm raising my family and I can't pay for the health care. Our next question is from Yamans, who asks, how will private equity change medicine? Ooh, not for the better. Um, so just to set some context for this. Uh, private equity firms are companies that uh, invest in other private companies, meaning not um, publicly traded corporations, the privately held companies. And what they'll do is they'll invest in them and then they will do one of the following. They'll either grow them and then sell them uh, and make money that way. Or what they'll do is try and buy a bunch of them and then sell them as a bouquet um, and, and make money on the fact that they've like what they call rolled them up. Um, and the idea is that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, or what they'll do is fundamentally gut them uh, for parts and, um, and and try and sell those parts uh, for more than the whole, right? But that's what private equity is. All of this sits on the background of consolidation in the healthcare system. So, you know, if you're listening, I want you to think about the, the hospital near where you grew up, the hospital you would have gone to if you broke your arm when you were a kid. Ask yourself if that hospital has the same name now as it did when you were young. And chances are it doesn't. Chances are now it is part of a system. That is a demonstration of consolidation at work. You have hospitals that are leveraging their scale and scope to uh, buy up other hospitals. And um, what that means is that you have fewer and fewer hospital providers that are now arrayed in networks. Um, and those networks then have substantially more power. And we all know from basic economics that if you have a monopoly or an oligopoly, um, it allows you to set price. And that, that's what um, these, these uh, consolidated hospitals uh, are doing and have done. Now, um, what happens is that while hospitals are busy buying up hospitals, um, they aren't always focused on physician practices. And what private equity is doing is buying up physician practices, and usually they're rolling them up, setting them up then to sell uh, to these larger hospital systems. 
All of that means that for patients, we have fewer choices at the point of care and that those uh, providers, be they um, practices or large hospitals, are better able to set prices in ways that contribute to the increasing cost of healthcare. And then what it also means, though, is that for physicians or, uh, or healthcare providers, when you have fewer options, those companies exert what's called a monopsony. They are um, one of a fewer number of buyers of your labor. And when you have monopsony power, it's like uh, doing exactly the same thing uh, to providers as uh, you're doing to patients. So while you can squeeze patients and make them pay a higher price, you can squeeze providers and offer them a lower price for their labor. And what that means then uh, for providers, be they nurses or hospital staff or doctors, is that they end up making substantially less money than they used to. Uh, interesting statistic, in 2018, um, the average physician no longer worked for a physician-owned practices. Remember, doctors back in the day used to put up a shingle and say, I'm a doctor, come see me. Uh, and then over time, you'd build your practice, you'd hire more doctors. Um, and so doctors used to work for doctors. No longer is that the case. Most doctors now work for large corporations, and in part, that is because of the power of private equity. Now, um, one of the things that those consolidated practice systems will do once they're owned by private equity firms is that while they may offer uh, physicians a higher salary at the front end, on the back end, physicians used to make a lot more because they own the practice, right? So they would they would benefit not just from the salary that they collected for seeing patients, but because they owned a business and no longer are, are physicians business owners. And so in large part, they're getting squeezed out. The other last point of this is that it's just harder to work in a consolidated environment because, well, um, you're not your own boss. Uh, and the person who is your boss doesn't know what you do every day. They just see you as someone who, in effect, works a line that um, produces healthcare. Uh, and um, and so uh, doctors are getting squeezed. To my mind, I think the single most important thing to address the impact of private equity, consolidation, and frankly, uh, Medicare for all, is that doctors start to form unions. And one of the most unfortunate things about the, the kind of selection process into who becomes a doctor is that uh, we tend to be people who are really good at following rules um, and unionizing implies being willing to buck rules. Uh, and if you've gotten where you are because you know you were the best at getting an A in your orgo class and did the best at studying for the MCAT and the best at memorizing PowerPoint slides and the best at taking your boards, um, you tend to believe that the folks who employ you have your best interest at heart. And I hate to say it, but private equity firms, consolidated hospitals, they exploit that at every turn. Uh, and so doctors need to unionize and recognize that um, you know, we are not special snowflakes. Uh, we are uh, a form of labor like other forms of labor. And unless and until we are willing um, to step up and advocate, not just on our behalf, but on behalf of everyone else who works in hospitals and clinics, and most importantly, on behalf of our patients, we're going to continue to see greed running and moving our healthcare system in ways that hurt us and, and more importantly, hurt our patients. We'll be back with more after this break.
Today's episode of American Dissected is brought to you by Idealist.org. For 27 years, Idealist has been the number one job board for the social impact sector. Whether you're hiring for a nonprofit, a business with socially responsible positions, or a company with a social mission, Idealist is the best way to reach an engaged community of millions all looking to make the world a better place. Idealist has a variety of free and low-cost hiring tools to make hiring easier. The Idealist Applicant Tracker keeps your recruiting process organized and is available for free with every job posting. Creating a profile for your organization on Idealist is a great way to attract dedicated and talented professionals to join your growing team. Use their ATS integrations to seamlessly integrate with your existing applicant tracking system. Sign up to start posting jobs today. Go to idealist.org AD to get a credit for one free 30-day job listing. Support for this podcast comes from Marguerite Casey Foundation. Marguerite Casey Foundation imagines a world where all communities are represented in our economy and democracy. The foundation is proud to announce the 2022 Freedom Scholars. The MCF Freedom Scholars compile research that provides critical insight on how we can radically improve our democracy, economy, and society. The 2022 recipients include prison abolitionist and director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, lawyer, writer, and organizer, Dorika Purnell, and esteemed grassroots organizer, Mariame Kaba. To learn more about them and to see the full list of 2022 Freedom Scholars, visit CaseyGrants.org and follow at CaseyGrants on all social media. And we're back with more of our holiday mailbag. Well, it's been quite a year. Our listener, Lindsay, asks, is public health worse off now than we were at the start of 2022? How prepared are we to face the next public health threat? I'm going to interpret that question in a couple of ways. Uh, Are we worse off right now? Yeah, absolutely. Will we be worse off for having gone through the pandemic? That has yet to be seen and is a function of what we do moving forward. To substantiate my first point, I just want you to think about MPOX. This is the public health 101 of outbreaks. Unlike COVID, which is airborne, um, which is exceedingly contagious, and um, for which we did not have treatment or a vaccine, MPOX is a disease we've seen before. It has such a long incubation period that somebody can literally get exposed, get a vaccine, and that vaccine can prevent them from getting the actual disease. And it requires people to have really, really close contact. Not only that, though, um, because it's not airborne, we knew the community that it was affecting first. So this should have been easy to stop. And look, at the end of the day, we got our stuff together and we stopped it. But there are a lot of people out there who had unnecessary infections of MPOX um, that should have and could have been prevented. And the fact that our public health system could not do that from the jump is uh, a serious issue and one that we should be really, really concerned about because let's be clear, um, there are many possible permutations of viruses that could do what COVID could do. And if one of those were to hit us right now, um, I think we would be in a a really dire strait. As you all know, I work in municipal public health. The number of vacancies uh, in health departments across the country is profound. We're talking about, you know, tens of percents. Um, And large part, that's burnout, but it's also just the morale of having to do more work and do it understaffed and know that you have so much more to do that you're not even getting to because you're just trying to take on the pandemic. You can imagine what that does to a team of people whose commitment is to the public health. Now, the the choice that we have moving forward um, is twofold. 
Number one, it's um, what we do around investing in our public health workforce. Uh, we need to be better staffed. Um, we need our workers to be better paid. Um, we need to invest in the means of their success. And we've been behind the eight ball. I mean, this was an issue that we were staring at before COVID even happened. And I think what COVID did is it just exploited all of those holes. Uh, the other part of it is what we do as a society. What what we choose to uh, engage with, the conversations that we choose to have, um, and how we choose to get behind public health and the science that backs it. Um, you know, just this week you have Ron DeSantis pursuing this public health McCarthyism uh, in trying to impanel a grand jury um, to uh, go after everyone involved with the vaccine rollout. There's going to be nothing there, but, you know, the best single way is, as Joseph McCarthy demonstrated, um, to vilify something uh, is to go through a witch hunt process where the frame of the conversation is entirely about how this thing is evil, wrong, bad. Um, and we can't countenance that. You know, we have to decide that where people are vilifying public health and public health leaders and public health agencies uh, that we're going to step up and, and defend public health. Because I'll tell you what, even if we don't defend public health, public health has been working in the background to defend us. And I think um, we owe these folks so much more than we've given them. Uh, and that responsibility, I think, in the very least, uh, has to lie with 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 defending them. You, you all know I, I wouldn't host this podcast, I wouldn't do the work that I do uh, in my day job if I didn't believe in public health. But what I wish folks understood is that you know, when we're doing our best work, by definition, you don't hear about us. It's because the uh, virus that could have been a pandemic, the the traffic stop that could have led to several accidents, they just don't. And um, and we go about our days thinking that um, somehow we're just super lucky or bad things don't happen to us. Um, but I spent a lot of my childhood in Egypt where um, folks routinely drink dirty water and routinely breathe air that leaves your nose, the inside of your nose black, um, where children routinely die before the age of one, uh, where there is no semblance of any sort of traffic enforcement. And so people die in car accidents all the time, like my younger cousin did uh, in his early 20s. And I see the consequences in the contrast in the life that I get to lead, that my uh, daughter gets to lead, um, that my cousins and their kids don't. And I just wish more people saw that, and it's really frustrating um, that they don't. Mm. Enchanted wants to know, what's a public health fact you wish people knew? Mine is how zip code is a great predictor of life expectancy. Yeah, that's a really um, important one, Enchanted. I appreciate the question. The one I wish people understood is what life expectancy means. Like, I, I hear very educated people cite these statistics about what it was like to live back in the day, and they'll be like, well, life expectancy was 30. And the assumption is everybody just dropped that at 30. Like, that's just not how it works. Like, <laughs> life expectancy is an average. It is um, it, it is um, a, a recognition of the average age that people die. So you can imagine if 50% of everybody born died at one and 50% of everybody born died at 100, the life expectancy would be about 50.5, right? Doesn't mean that, everybody's dying at 50.5. It means that literally half of everybody's living to 100 and half of everybody's dying as a baby. So I just kind of wish that people understood that there was a distribution that we were talking about when it comes to life expectancy 
um, and, and stop citing life expectancy statistics as if everybody just dies at the life expectancy. That's just, just not how it was. And like, it just kind of makes sense. Most people who are around 30 don't, I mean, it's not to say that people who are 30 don't die. That's just to say that that's just not our usual time to die, right? Like what is killing you at 30? Obviously, you're living in a society where, you know, people are dying in, uh, in, in childbirth or people are dying in war. Yes, there are going to be younger people who die. But it's like, not like your whole society dies at 30. Like, just, it's just not a thing. Stop saying it. And please, let's just remember, you're talking about a distribution of death statistics. And as I say that, I realize why nobody wants to think about it. But like, but please do, please. Um, our next question, um, talking about kids, comes from Nicole Duffy, who wants to know, what can I do to minimize the sickness my kid comes home from daycare with? We've been knocked out time and time again this fall, and it sucks. Nicole... You and me both. I am the father, proud father of a five-year-old who insists upon infecting me with her dirt and grime every time she comes home from preschool. I love her dearly, but I am very upset about this. Um, look, the hard part with younger children, particularly toddlers, is you know you can put them in a mask. It just doesn't usually stay on their face. Um, they tend to have other ideas and uh, trying to sit down with them and, and, and walk through statistics about their risk of being infected with um, uh, a high prevalence infectious disease is somewhat futile. Um, and so that's not really a great option. One of the things that um, I really wish we talked more about and that more institutions invested in was basic air purification. Um, you know, the, the sine qua non of public health is about changing the context in which people are, uh, are, are, are existing and living um, so that that context prevents uh, illness. And, you know, I hate to say it, so much of our public health response has been about what you or I can do individually to protect ourselves. And, you know, part of that is just because we are a deeply individualistic society and that's how we think about the world. But we sometimes forget about the things that we can do around um, ourselves that protect us. And, we know from evidence that air purification works and investing in high-quality air purification, um, in particular at the HVAC level, at the building level, but but also just um, air purification units that you can put uh, in a daycare, that that really helps. And um, it doesn't just help with COVID. It's not just a COVID response, but it's all of uh, these um, fall and winter infectious diseases that we're getting hit particularly hard with right now. And so I, 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 that is one thing that I think really can be helpful. Um, so maybe sitting down with um, the administrators at the daycare and saying, hey, you know, can, can we install some air purification units um, that might reduce the burden of uh, infectious diseases, particularly in a moment like this where we know RSV is running rampant um, and that is landing a lot of children in hospitals. In the same vein of family care, another question from Maria, what about adequate paid sick leave, family paid leave following the welcoming of a child? How do we catch up with the world? Maria. I, um, I'm with you and I, I'm, I'm thinking about this, particularly in the context, uh, where you know, I don't think I've announced this yet, but, uh, Zara and I are expecting a second child in January and, um, she's going to have three months of maternity leave. Uh, I just started a new job and so I'm, I'm doing my best to scrape, um, out as much as I can, but that's just not a question that people have to think a lot about because believe it or not, three months is really generous. Um, but you know, the last time Sarah was pregnant and delivered, thankfully, she's now healthy, but there were some complications there. Uh, and um, she actually had to to petition her 
uh, House Officers Union um, doctors organizing. Uh, but she had to petition her House Officers Union to get more time off because, you know, for the first couple of weeks there, she, she just really couldn't walk. Um, and I just think about the fact that we make it so hard to do one of the most important natural things that humans do, which is procreate. Um, and of course, the burden of this falls um, way disproportionately uh, on on women and um, the consequences that it has for families, the knock-on consequences it has on uh, the ability to, um, you know, to afford a home, uh, particularly as you think about, you know, young people uh, these days, right? They, they like to tell us that um, the reason that folks uh, who are millennials or, or, or folks in Gen Z can't afford housing is because we've spent so much on lattes and avocado toast, which, you know, I'll be honest, like if, if boomers had more avocado toast, I think they'd just be happier. Um, but uh, it's neither here nor there. It's, it's, it's largely because housing is super expensive and um, we live in a society where we are constantly paying down debt uh, for doing basic things like going to college. And so, um, you know, when you add on the cost of then having to think about whether or not you can sustain childcare and a job at the same time, um, when you decide to have kids, it's no wonder that fewer people uh, in, in their 20s and 30s are uh, remotely considering having kids. And so this is a society-wide question that we have to think through. And obviously, um, what, what, what we think of as choices are a function of the consequences of those choices. And when the consequences uh, get substantially harder, um, when you think on the other side of having a child, uh, it's, it, it, we, are, we are stacking the deck, um, particularly against women, but frankly, against, against all of us. And the last point I just want to make about this, and I, I think we fail to consider the generational consequences of the choices that we make. You know, when you think about Social Security, when you think about Medicare and their sustainability, uh, we damn well better figure out how to start having more kids. And when you make it really, really hard for young people to have kids, uh, well, what you're basically saying is our ability to sustain um, the kinds of um, programs that provide for our seniors uh, is substantially lower. And, and so we're all kind of connected here as much as we don't really want to believe that we are. Um, and so, you know, if, if you're a senior right now, uh, it is in your best interest, um, to, uh, invest in and politically support, uh, things like paid family leave and universal childcare, um, that facilitate us having more children so that, you know, we, we, we can keep our society moving. Um, and we're just not doing that. So uh, I, I worry a lot about that. And I, I've seen up close and personal what the consequences uh, too often are um, for, uh, for women in particular, but families in general. So often when things go wrong, ERs are on the front lines. Bella wants to know, and she's an ER RN, is healthcare ever going to get better? The ER is a dumping ground for everything. This feels unsustainable. Bless you, Bella. I, I really appreciate um, what you do every day, and I'm really grateful that you do it. And you're absolutely right uh, that the ER is a dumping ground. And what people don't appreciate is that our failure to offer universal health coverage in this country doesn't mean that people don't get the health care that they absolutely need. It means that they don't get it when it's the most efficient, it's the most effective, it's the best for them. So what happens is if you can't walk into a primary care clinic to care for your diabetes, for example, and you can't afford your insulin, what will happen is you are going to get extremely sick because you're trying to ration what little insulin that you have. 
which means you're a lot sicker than you should have been because um, because you are, are are now going without the treatment that you need. And where you end up winding up is in the emergency room. And so you end up getting emergency care when it's extremely expensive, it's extremely inefficient, and you're way sicker than you ever should have been. And so we as a society end up paying more to provide worse care because we're unwilling to invest in providing basic primary care to everyone. And um, and folks like Bella have to bear the consequences. Um, you know, I, I, I decided not to practice medicine because of an experience in an emergency room, uh, in, in large part, um, you know, because A, our, our healthcare system does everything it can to gatekeep against low-income people, but B, because um, of the burnout that people in emergency rooms tend to experience. Uh, I had a patient who, uh, when I was in medical school, I was helping to take care of, um, who'd fallen, hit her head. Um, she had been drinking in the morning um, and uh, lived with alcoholism. Um, she was indigent. Uh, she was unhoused at the time. And um, she had a huge welt on her head. And when I asked the, the emergency room physician what the CT showed, uh, he, he said that they didn't do one because they thought she'd be a social admin. Now, to explain why you need a CT, if you fall, you hit your head. Um, you know, if you have insurance, you're going to get a CT scan to rule out a brain bleed, which can be a medical emergency. And because she'd been drinking, um, he didn't want to uh, admit her. And he knew that the longer she spent in the emergency room, the higher the probability that she would start to withdraw and from, from alcohol. And so they basically didn't do a real history and physical exam, didn't get her the CT that she needed because she'd fallen, hit her head. You could clearly see the welt. And they were trying to, you know, basically figure out how fast they could get the sign off uh, and get her back out on the street. And when um, I talked to my attending physician, we ultimately ended up uh, admitting her. But the fact that our emergency room, um, between the hospital-level incentives not to admit patients like this because they can't pay, and the fact that the physician who decided not to do a CT was on you know, the end of a overnight shift, just really wanted to go home and couldn't be bothered, right? You, you see how this system fails to care for the people who need it most and burns out the people uh, who are asked to fill in the gap. Um, and it's just, it is a travesty. Uh, and it is a consequence of the fact that our system does not humanize people. And instead, uh, it's built specifically to monetize them when they're the sickest. And um, I think all of us should be uh, outraged about it. Um, but also not forget that, you know, we, we live in a society and what happens to uh, the poorest, most indigent, most marginalized of us um, could happen to us. And I wish we all understood that a little bit better. On a related note, Melissa Miller asks, what is the impact of eviction on a person's health? Hi, Melissa. Um, I assume this is the Melissa Miller uh, that I worked with at the Detroit Health Department who asked a fantastic question. I'm, I'm sorry that you have to ask the question because, well, too many people get evicted uh, every single day in, in this country. If you're at home right now or you just recently left your home, I want you to think about all of the features of that space you call home that are... Uh, foundational to your own stability. Um, that bed that you sleep on, right? The food that sits in your refrigerator, <laughs> just the, the toothbrush and toothpaste that you store in your medicine cabinet um, 
that you use to clean your teeth before you go to bed and after you wake up. Uh, your clothes and where you hang them. Your medications and where you store them. Homes uh, are such a foundation for our lives that when we lose them, um, it is really, really difficult to reorganize. And, um, you know, you think about people with chronic ailments, be they physical or mental, and I, I think the division between those two things is fundamentally arbitrary, but um, your ability to, to take your medicine on schedule, your ability uh, to see a, um, a medical provider at a regular clip, all of that is founded on you having an ordered life. And when you lose that foundation of your own order, the consequences tend to spiral out. Not only that, though, just the insecurity of knowing you may be at risk of eviction is itself such a profound stressor um, that it has huge impacts on your mental health and your physical health. Again, arbitrary. Um, we know that when you're in, 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 in chronic stress, uh, levels of the hormone cortisol uh, abound. And we know that when you're exposed chronically to high cortisol levels, uh, it has impacts on everything from uh, the health of your heart to um, the health of your bones to, um, of course, your mental health. And so all of these things uh, compound on each other. So it's not just the eviction um, that is so disordering and such a stressor, but it's also just the risk of being evicted and the chronic stress of having to make rent every single month. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about housing being a human right, right, it is, it is the right to live in ordered life without the stress of knowing that you may lose that order uh, at any given period. And there's so much that we as a society need to do around making sure that we have adequate shelter for everybody in our society. Um, and a lot of that has to do with rethinking the way uh, that we build and pay for um, our shelter. Our listener, Alyssa, um, wrote to us saying, really would appreciate some discourse on the rampant fat phobia on the left with progressives. It's become one of my biggest pet peeves and it causes real actual harm. Yeah, I really appreciate the point. And um, the more we understand about uh, overweight and, and obesity, the more we understand that they are environmental uh, and not individual. And that is so in contrast to the extremely individualistic approach that we take to everything, as we talked about uh, with respect to our approach to the pandemic. But in particular, when it comes to um, you know food and exercise, the uh, assumption that someone who is overweight uh, or obese does not have self-control, cannot uh, exercise consistently, does not uh, eat well or makes bad food choices – is such a simplification of the circumstances in which people are making those food choices. I want you to think about this. Obesity has tripled since the 70s. That's not because people have changed. Our genetics haven't changed. Our behaviors haven't changed. It's that in the 70s, we started to subsidize corn, and then we started to put corn everywhere, and it started to lead to extremely cheap, extremely plentiful uh, food that was designed specifically um, to increase our consumption of that food. And, um, and then you couple that with inequality uh, and the fact that, um, you know, you can buy for the same price a Big Mac as you could buy two bags of spinach and you start to think about who gets access to a store to buy that spinach and who doesn't. Um, you know, where uh, can you buy a can of soda versus where can you buy green leafy vegetables? 
you think about the the ways that um, we market uh, or we allow corporations to market these goods, and you start to appreciate that so much of this is environmental uh, and not individual. And what fat phobia does is it blames individuals for what is ultimately a function of context um, and resources. And uh, when you put it that way, you start to appreciate um, just how wrong it is and uh, and, and frankly, just how hurtful um, and, and, and counterproductive it is. You know, you look at what the impact of weight stigma is, is that it tends to uh, lead to poor mental health and poor mental health then tends to lead to weight gain, so on and so forth. And um, so, you know, there, there's this, you see with doctors all the time, uh, they think that they can, you know, they can shame someone into uh, no longer being overweight or obese. And um, all that does is actually make the problem worse. And so I, I think in the same way that we talked about mental health stigma, um, I really appreciate uh, the the asker for bringing up weight stigma um, and the, the the impacts that that has uh, on, on, on too many people in uh, our country and um, the fact that we should not be advancing it um, and we need to be calling out. So I really appreciate the question for doing that. Question from Emma Illick Frank, 96. What's in your skincare routine? All right. Well, um, okay. Uh, well, you know, I, f- I feel like uh, with our conversation with James, I feel like I shouldn't have a skincare routine. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, but let's be clear. Like, I'm, I'm an aging Egyptian-American man. Um, so, uh, in the morning, I wash my face. And um, if it's the summer, then I will uh, usually use a, 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 a tinted sunscreen. Um, the, the usual sunscreen tends to go on kind of chalky and it's just not great. Um, I will regularly try and put more sunscreen on at lunch. Um, there is a history of skin cancer in my family. So I, I try and take that seriously. If it's in the winter in Michigan, like the sun doesn't come up until nine 30, it barely stays up until like five. Um, so I have a stay on face mask that I use. It's just like a really thick moisturizer. Um, and actually it's, it's, it's kind of great. Um, I like the way it feels on my face and it keeps me moisturized. And then in the evening, I will wash my face again. So if I work out, I'll wash my face after that and do exactly what I I, I, I would have done in the morning. Um, and then in the evening, I'll wash my face and I will apply some retinol uh, and um, some, some basic moisturizer and that's that. Um, uh, but I will say that as I've gotten older, you know what it was actually? Uh, Sarah was reading about J-Lo, who still looks like she's 25, despite the fact that she's, like, take those numbers and reverse it. And the one thing that she swore by was was sunscreen. And then I, like, I like went down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 now I, th- I think I have a routine that I kind of like. And, um, you know, we'll see if it likes me. Like, when I'm when I'm a bit older, that's, that's when we'll know if it actually sure, works. Sure, sure. <laughs> so no, like, magic lasers, no. No, like... I mean, I try, like, you know, I try and, I, so I'm, the nerd in me um, is tries to be very evidence driven, and the two things that have really good evidence behind them are uh, sunscreen, certainly, and retinol. Um, those are the two sort of very evidence driven uh, skincare must haves. I think washing your face is important, and like I tend to have really oily skin, so I just don't like not having my face washed. So that's why I, I, I think some would say I wash my face too much, but. Yeah, James Hamblin, if you're listening, we're sorry. Sorry, man. (laughs) Last question. What's the one public health problem we should invest more money, time, and person power in? Air pollution. Um, I think we tend to confuse climate change and air pollution, and they're not the same thing, 
right? Climate change is what happens when uh, we burn carbon into the atmosphere um, that then uh, creates a greenhouse effect uh, by which the heat from the sun um, is held into the atmosphere, which raises the, the temperature of the earth, uh, which melts polar ice caps. It interferes with all sorts of um, seen and unseen features of um, the world around us, causing everything from hurricanes to uh, to, to, to forest fires to uh, receding coastline. That's climate change. Air pollution is just the very basic fact that when you burn stuff into the air, um, you're releasing toxic chemicals into the air. And the ones that, you know, we tend to overlook aren't even chemicals at all. They're just tiny little particles called particulate matter, where uh, we call it particulate matter, which is an unnecessarily jargony name for stuff in the air. And there are two sizes that we tend to measure. One is um, PM10, which is less than 10 microns, and then we, we measure PM2.5. And the evidence is starting to come out about the attributable mortality uh, of just particulate matter is, um, it, it really is astounding. Um, even just, you know, cooking with gas, gas stoves, um, there is a demonstrable increased risk uh, of lung disease. And the thing about it is that over time, when you get bad lung disease, it tends to lead to heart disease. And the reason why is if you think about your heart, it's a two-way pump. It pumps um, consistently, you know, oxygenated blood into your body, into your musculature, uh, to your brain. And then it pumps deoxygenated blood after it's gone to your body and the oxygen's been used, it pumps it into your lungs. And the, the interesting thing is you would think that there's more resistance on your body side, but it's actually more resistance on your lung side. Uh, because you're trying to pass blood through an increasingly small network of arteries and arterioles um, so that you can get as much surface area uh, exposed to that blood in your lungs so that you get more oxygen from your lungs into your blood to oxygenate the blood. So um, when your lungs get injured because of persistent exposure to things like particulate matter, what happens is it starts to get fibrosed so that the ability to pass the blood is limited and now your heart is consistently beating against more and more resistance, which then leads to heart disease. So one of the ways that air pollution kills is through the single biggest killer in the world, which is heart disease. Um, and we're only now starting to really appreciate just how profound the impact is. Um, so I really wish as a society, we recognized that while we're trying to take on climate change, we also have to realize that um, it's also really important uh, to tackle that instrumental feature, which is the fact that every time we burn fossil fuels, uh, we're burning that air before it ever gets up into the atmosphere uh, through the lungs of children and seniors. And um, that that takes thousands of lives in communities across this country and across the world you know, every single year. That should be a really big focus, and I really wish we paid more attention to it. First of all, Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate you being uh, the interlocutor for the episode today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be on this side of the microphone. Isn't it fun? That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review. It goes a long way. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope to drop by the Crooked Store for some America Dissected merch. We've got our logo mugs and t-shirts. Our science always wins sweatshirts and dad caps make fantastic gifts.
American Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emma Illich Frank. Vasilis Fotopoulos mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz and Inez Mata. Our theme song is by Takao Sazawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily represent the view and opinion of Wayne County, Michigan or its Department of Health, Human and Veteran Services. I just have to say I had avocado toast this morning and I don't own a house. Is that correlation? Is that causation? Who's to say? I mean, I I think we should talk to more boomers about it, right? I'm I'm just saying they they don't eat avocado toast and like they own a and lot of houses. They do own houses, so. yeah. Hmm. <laughs> there may be an intervening variable in there, which is age, <laughs> um, but uh, but there may not be. Um, here's the thing: don't eat any avocado toast for a year. Take all the money you would have spent on avo toast, save it up, and if it's not enough to make a down payment on a house, then, <laughs> then then we know our answer here. <laughs>